That's fine. So first of all, uh, my name's Jeannie Holstein. Um, my, I put doctor there because I got my PhD in December, so I'm very proud to use that. Thank you. Um, normally I wouldn't use it, but this is my first opportunity. Um, my research is in strategy and complex contexts, particularly the intersection of um, policy and strategy. So I might have an explanation for Alice about um, strategic practice in universities responding to policy, hopefully. Uh, and my thesis considered strategy as an intertextual narrative. Now, I counted narratives said about six times. So I hope I'm, I'm in the theme there. My current research is looking at an enterprise uh, development initiative with Growth 100 businesses in Nottingham. So we're looking at restaging of organisational practices. So that fits in with Hewitt, I think. And then I'm looking for funding for, this is, I say this everywhere, for contemporary in this emotional framing of policy. So that's, my, that's my attempt to get funding. So this, this is a paper, this is from a paper that's been accepted at the um, Academy of Management conference in Vancouver. And it's, it's basically also the paper we're about to submit to the Academy of Man Management Journal, so fingers crossed. So I'm going to give you a brief introduction to strategies and intertextual narrative. Um, if you look at strategies narrative, you look at it as being constructed and made in dialogical heteroglossic exchange. What does that mean? It means you have centering and decentering forces in the, at the heart of narrative. And it involves the use and mobilization of different building blocks. Narrative is not made in isolation, but it draws on the wider setting. And it's not just... When you talk about strategy as narrative, you're not just talking about strategy, you're talking about how a narrative tells an organisation forward how it is. So strategy as narrative is a significant form of organisational order, ordering, and it provides this discourse of direction. And I said it's made in this complex process, and it's not just called strategy. And what I discovered in my, in my thesis was there was a gap in knowledge about how strategy draws upon the setting in which it's produced, to how it's an intertextual accomplishment. That's how I reframed it. And the interesting thing about narrative, it's not monolithic. It's, it's got embedded within narrative are narrative building blocks. So those are basic units or themes which can be taken up in further narrative. And the cumulative effect of this take-up is what we call narrative infrastructure. So narrative infrastructure is a concept that was used in product development processes but hasn't been really used in strategy. So it was signposted by Fenton and Langley who said it might be a good idea to explore this, which is what I've done in my, in my thesis. And to be taken up in this infrastructure, narrative building blocks have to be both available, which makes sense. If they're not available, they can't be used. And they have to be resonant. And resonant means that they have some uh, condition of internal coherence. So it's probable. So we understand it as a probability. And as a condition of fidelity. So it corresponds with our values or our understanding of the world. So in simple terms, all you have to do is think about narrative infrastructure as the rails along which multi-actor and multi-level processes gain thrust and direction. So just think about it, narrative infrastructure as rails. Uh, and it applies in this way, narrative infrastructure provides an obliging guide. And it does so in a way that we become actors in those stories. 
not completely determined by the narrative infrastructure, but certainly signposted and signaled towards it. And interestingly about this is studies of this obliging guide have really been in, in, in areas where you can almost say that the rails have been actively greased. So they've been in, air, in, air, in settings where strategy as a narrative or intertextual narrative has been constrained in time and constrained through the, the voices that have, have contributed. And the difference with higher education is, and it's why it's theoretically relevant, is a, it's a setting with many different voices and equally autonomous. And it's also got quite an extended narrative time. So the narrative of the university, which for this purpose I'm talking about as strategy, reaches into the past as well as into the future and in the present. And it's been discursively constructed over, the lo over a long term in private and in public, which is quite interesting. So that's why higher education is theoretically relevant. So I was looking at how strategy, I guess, maintains thrust and direction, creates thrust and direction, and how it does so, if you like, uh, in such a way that it gains stability and routine. Okay, so that's, that's the theoretical construct, and that's five minutes, which is on time. You might ask the question in a different way, actually. You could ask the question about why there are two dichotomously re re resonant narratives of the university in existence. The narrative of the enterprise university, which we all recognise, and the narrative of the traditional university that we may sometimes refer to and often refer to. And actually, you could consider those in opposition. So if you've got these two narratives, and strategies narrative is a discourse of direction, how do they balance out? So that could be another way of framing the question. Okay? So I was looking at these narratives of the university, dichotomously resonant, considering them through 20 years of policy documents. So how was the university intertextually produced in policy documents? I also looked um, in the organisation, so I did research, I conducted research in two research intensive universities, as well as looking at their corporate documents, as well as looking at um, or, or interviewing 42 people, but in the university, but also in the policy nexus, uh, including in Hefke, actually. So, quite a corpus of uh, data. Um, which I then analysed through three levels of intertextuality, which I'll explain. So it's a narrative analysis, naturally. So I don't know if you can see this. So it's where it gets interesting. So you've got... I've got a pointer, haven't I? Is it the top one? The middle. Middle. OK, so at a constitutive level of intertextuality, so that's really just what we understand as how... Uh, different pockets or different themes form narrative. So we might recognise these themes. There were three main intertextual themes in, under the narrative of the university in policy and within the organisation. Innovation, economic growth and social impact. What was very interesting was that the university, the narrative of the university has transitioned in this time from being a science partner through an innovation process. 
to being central to an innovation ecosystem. Now think of that. Think of that in terms of what that allows the university to do as a narrative. If you're a science partner, you're equal. If you're in an innovation ecosystem, you're not going to survive out of it, are you? So you can understand how science and research, is, which is central to the narrative of the traditional university, has been co-opted just through that narrative. And then the second intertextual theme has been around economic growth. And very interestingly, in the period, this economic growth started out as regional as well. It's returned to regional economic growth latterly, but it's been... Um, it's, it's a different kind of engagement by the university in this narrative. The university now is responsible for driving economic growth with SMEs within the region in a way that it wasn't before. And then it still has this intertextual theme of social impact. But again, very interestingly, which resources the, the traditional university, but very interestingly, this social impact has been, was started out as very nebulous, and has progressively been narrowed to quite a, a prescribed um, description of impact, okay, which now can be measured. So we have in, in Witty's uh, paper, uh, REF being implicated in the growth impact for SMEs. So that's how close it gets. So the university has made this transition. So the, the the narrative of the traditional university has been co-opted and the enterprise university narrative, or the narrative of the enterprise university is dominant. And the interesting thing is, and we might all recognise that, in fact there's evidence to say that the narrative of the enterprise university is dominant in policy. Uh, what my research shows is that it, that has an intertextual reach and it's dominant in corporate documents as well. And you might be interested to learn that it's also dominant within private, within the institutions. How can I say that? I say private in the interviews that I've conducted. So the language, or the narrative of the Enterprise University has actually translated all the way through, very interestingly. It's, you still have the narrative of the traditional university, um, and you might, you might think, well, they're in competition, how can this discourse of direction have the set be evident and how can trust be maintained? Well, what I'm suggesting is that underneath this co-option is actually, it's, it's driven by emotional rhetoric. So there are two emotions, two prevailing emotions that drive the rhetoric both in policy documents, corporate documents and also privately and they are around fear and hope. Okay, so you have, a, you have a wonderful quote early on from John Major's government about um, uh, Asian tigers threatening, and you have, all the time, you have even have ex existential um, threats to the university, threats to Britain. Okay, and these, these coalesce into two uh, intertextual emotional themes, fear and hope. So you can understand how that co-option's been driven. But at the same time, again, it doesn't resolve the conflict between the traditional and the enterprise university. And what I'm suggesting is, at an ideological level, this co-option is underpinned by two 
two ideological positions. One is around the primacy of the market, which again we'll recognise. The other one is around the primacy of civilization and civilising. So what I'm suggesting is they're unified as forms of globalisms. So put it simply, what's underpinning this corruption is the university as this mythological place, this centre of civilization, and now a place of rescue for the market. And I call that, and it's, I refer to that as Axis Mundi. So underpinning this corruption, which looks almost complete, is this ideological unification. So before I go further, I don't know if you can see some of these phrases. I'll read them out. So you've got the university is um, not just the heart of a knowledge economy, but also the heart of a civilised society. It's a centre of critical inquiry and free thinking, civic values and understanding through teaching and research. That was the last coalition government, in case you thought it came earlier. You've got the universities, and this was from Wilson's review, just as castles provided the source of strength for medieval towns and factories provided prosperity in the industrial age, Universities are the source of strength in the knowledge-based economy of the 21st century. This is drawing upon a wider ideology than just what we might understand as the market. And then when you get into the organisation, in corporate terms you've got classically university values learning and knowledge for their own stake as well as for the social and economic benefit they can bring. And then, uh, this is from a policymaker. The university should be the centre of unfettered and undirected human inquiry to come up with new ideas, new understanding of, of the world, and key institutions in terms of democratic culture. We have a lot to do, as you can imagine, if we're doing enterprise, innovation, democratic culture. So one of the reasons that the university has, the traditional university has been co-opted, is because it's underpinned by this unifying ideology. The university is a, a saviour, so a saviour to the market and a saviour to civilization itself. That's my argument. So what, what the research has shown is that the narrative of the enterprise university, which so far has been understood as very strongly implicated in policy, is in fact extended within the organisation through, the, through corporate documents and privately. This co-option of the narrative of the traditional university is ongoing. It's enabled through emotion, so fear and hope, and it's done so in a framing that supports this centralisation of meaning. You remember I was talking about centering and decentering forces in narrative. There's no opposition to it. Opposition is, is curtailed within this narrative infrastructure, which is a really important point. And what the contribution to theory is, is that strategy endures because thrust and direction is maintained through so this framing that main, maintains wide availability of the different building blocks. And what I say is inculcates resonance and reduces conflict. So if you think about it in directional terms, there's nothing stopping the direction of the enterprise university in narrative terms. And then just to complete what next, um, I think... If I had a crystal ball, 
uh, talking about those intertextual themes, we had innovation, but economic growth, and we had social benefit or social impact. And I, I wrote this before I came here. One's around skills. I think that's one of the that's the, one of the next intertextual themes to to come in, and that's a further co-option of the narrative of the traditional university. I think because how do we understand skills? You know, what's the difference between skills and learning? I think there's another one around localism and devolution, and I think that's potentially a further co-option of the traditional university in terms of a narrowing of, of what we understand as civic. And then I think the biggest concern I have with this, the power of, the, of these narratives, is a loss of diversity and provision. Because I talked about traditional universities, and I think you have... Um, this isn't just about research-intensive universities. This is about all universities working towards this one narrative. So that includes the post-92s as well. And one of the things we, we lose when that happens is a really true understanding of diversity in the region. So that's me, running out of breath, but I think time. Yeah. Thank you.